Good morning. This morning's passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning with the second half of verse 1 through the end of the chapter, verse 22. It can be found on page 236 in the Black Chair Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, What's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A god has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road, watching because he was anxious about the ark of God. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, why this commotion? The man quickly came and reported to Eli. At that time, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's Ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was dying, the woman taking care of her said, Don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel 
referring to the capture of the Ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the Ark of God has been captured. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Well, friends, uh, have you noticed that in today's culture, it's easier to talk about angels, it's easier to talk about vague spirituality, it's easier to talk about crystals than it is about God or Jesus? Why is that? Maybe in talking about angels, you get all the comfort without having to deal with the demands. <laughs> Maybe it's easier to domesticate God in our present cultural moment, to create a version of God in our minds that is palatable, easy to absorb, a God that is fun to be around, doesn't ruffle our feathers. I mean, who wouldn't want this God, right? But friends, is he the God of the Bible? Consider Christmas time for a moment. Everybody loves baby Jesus but few want to serve King Jesus. Everybody roots for the Jesus who calls out the religious elite, but few want the Jesus who tells us to take care of our own planks. Everybody admires the Jesus who talks to prostitutes, but few follow the Jesus who calls lust adultery. Friends, if you want Jesus in your life, you must want all of him. Jesus isn't a choose-your-own-cable package. It's just too easy for us, right? It's too easy for us to reduce Jesus to someone we can manage, to someone we can use for our own purposes, isn't it? Friends, is it easy for you? Is it easy for me to want God's comforts without his demands? Friends, do you take God seriously or do you take him too lightly? That's an interesting word, right? Lightly, light. Keeping things light means not being too serious. We use phrases like light-hearted, right? And when we talk about serious, more substantial things, we use phrases like heavy hearts or heavy blow or weighty matters. And the Bible itself makes the, the same link. The Hebrew word for glory, kabod, comes from the same root as the word weighty, which is kabed. The glory of God, something we see in this passage, is his weightiness. We're not talking about his physical weight, obviously. We're talking about the seriousness with which God must be taken. And so, friends, if God is weighty, if he's substantial, that must mean something for every bit of our lives, right? It must reshape how we live and speak and act and so forth. We must let his weight, the weight of his existence, permeate our lives. And this is the opposite, of course, of domesticating God. For God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. Now, the story in front of us this morning for Samuel chapter 4 will help us to embrace this very truth. Here's the main point. You'll see it on your screen. When God is taken too lightly among his people, he will make sure to throw his weight around. When God is taken too lightly among his people, he will make sure to throw his glory around. Listen, folks, it is absolutely vital that you and I feel the weight of God's existence. It is absolutely vital that you and I serve 
the weight of God's glory above all things. You know, there are all kinds of daily influencers in your life, in my life, little pressures, little prods that make you think and speak and act the way you do. So other people, the fears and anxieties we have, our hopes and dreams, uh, the circumstances of life. The question before us today is, how much is the weight of God's glory actually influencing you? How much is the weight of God's glory actually influencing you? ancient Israel. That's what this story is about. So we're going to walk through this story in two movements, verses 1 through 11. We're going to see that Israel takes God lightly. Israel takes God lightly. And you'll notice our story begins with a great battle. We're introduced to the Philistines. You've heard of the Philistines, David and Goliath. That's about 14 chapters from now. But here, here we are introduced to the Philistines. They're this great pagan nation that's hostile towards Yahweh and Israel. They're descendants of the Egyptians, interestingly enough. And at this point in the story, they've settled on the coastal strip of Palestine in these five city states. So they're right on the border, right on the doorstep of Israel. And they're giving them all kinds of trouble. And our story, of course, as you'll notice, does not start well because Israel is taking God too lightly. Now, how do we know that? I want you to notice in verse 1, Israel goes into battle without God. And notice the the, the interesting juxtaposition in verse 1, the first half of verse 1 with the second half of verse 1. It's striking. Uh, So so it it says, in Samuel's words came to all Israel. There's the first half. So yay, God is finally speaking and directing and guiding. So we talked about last week. But where is Samuel now? I mean, his ministry was prevalent. It was pervasive in chapters 1 through 3. In the next three chapters, he's interestingly absent. The writer is making, I think, a literary point with the absence of Samuel. He's showing precisely what happens when God's prophet is not leading Israel. God should have been involved. Samuel should have been consulted. God's people don't ask God. God's people don't ask his prophet for help. They're taking God too lightly. And so they rush into the battle and they lose. Friends, too often we do the same thing, don't we? We rush into the battle of our days, whatever that might be, and then we come out discouraged, we come out confused, we haven't consulted God, we haven't consulted His Word. We are not meant to bear the tasks and trials of our days alone. We are meant to bear those things in dependence on the Lord. So what happens next? Well, things go from bad to worse. The elders of Israel, they're totally confused. Notice in verse 3, they ask this question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's the right question to ask. It's a good question, right? They rightly credit God for this defeat. But notice their answer to the question was a little too quick. There's not a lot of space between the question and the answer. There's just that like little space, just a little breath, right, before they, they offer up their answer. They should have let the question linger. Huh. God has allowed this defeat to take place. What does that mean? What is God doing? What, why did this happen? Their mind should have wandered over to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. You know, they, they had the Mosaic law. They had a memory of it. They, they had, they had the, 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 the scrolls around them. And that, that section of the Mosaic covenant where God says to Israel, hey, Israel, if you don't obey my commandments, if you've got a bunch of false shepherds, I'm going to curse you. Now, what were those curses like? Well, there were plagues, there's famines, 
There were enemies defeating them. That's what we see here. It's all kinds of stuff like that. But the elders of Israel apparently hadn't read their Bibles in a while. And so what did they do? They said, hey, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant out into battle. That way God's going to come to save us. They thought if they brought this Ark into battle, then God would be forced to deliver them because if they lost the Ark, well, that means God is losing. So they're trying to put God under pressure. It's a crazy statement, isn't it? Now, we got to ask the question, what is this Ark of the Covenant anyway? Those of you that have watched... The wonderful, brilliant Raiders of the Lost Ark may know a little something about this. It's interesting to think of that movie and then read this text, right? So the Nazis in that story were trying to get the Ark. Why were they trying to get the Ark? Well, they wanted to leverage the power of the Ark so that they can beat the Allies. It's a little too familiar, isn't it? <laughs> but you can't learn about the Ark of the Covenant from a movie. You got to look at the scriptures. So what do we learn from the scriptures about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the ark was a beautifully decorated box containing the Ten Commandments and a sample of manna. So the Ten Commandments are to remind them of their covenant, their relationship with God. Uh, but, but this manna, that this bread from heaven that God provided for his people in the wilderness, remember that, it was to remind them of his provision. So his covenant relationship, his provision. But beyond this, the most important thing the ark represented was God's very presence. It was the portable symbol of God's presence among his people. So, so when the ark was around, when the ark was in the tabernacle, when, when the ark was where it was supposed to be, they sensed God's presence. They sensed his power uh, was with them. Well, the Israelites, they bring the ark into battle. They kind of treat it like it's a good luck charm. You know, they're taking God too lightly, right? But here's the irony of this. The Philistines actually do take God seriously. Look at verse 6 through 8. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry, so the Israelites are so excited because they got their champion in battle, the ark, and they asked, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked, and a god has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? Now watch this. These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness, Show some courage and be men, Philistines. I mean, they've got better theology than the Israelites do, right? They fear God, Yahweh, in some way because they remember those exodus events, those plagues, right? You know, the Israelites could probably recount to you the stories. Here are the stories of the exodus and so forth. But they were not living in light of the story. The Philistines were. And so they're afraid. They remember what God could do. They feel the weight of God's existence. And so they say, hey, take courage and fight. What happens? Well, look at verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and each man fled to his tents. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Early on, Israel goes into battle without God and they lose. Now they go into battle with God, so they think, and they lose. And I want this to sit with you. It's, it's kind of stats that we don't often let sit with us. 30,000 of your fellow people are slaughtered. 30,000. After 4,000 were killed earlier, 34,000 of your people have been slaughtered. This is so sad, right? And it's all because they treated the ark like a good luck charm. Listen, friends, that's not faith. That's presumption, right? That's superstition. 
It's rabbit foot theology, isn't it? There's no connection. There's no actual connection between the people of Israel or the elders of Israel with God or with his prophet, the the one who's come to bring God's word. They didn't pursue the Lord in this. Sometimes we don't either. We sometimes treat God like he's our waiter. (laughs) We, you know, hunker down at the table with our family or friends. We're enjoying the food. We're enjoying the conversation. And most of the time we ignore the waiter. But when we want something, well, then we, hey, come on over. Can I have a refill? Can you get the check, please, right? The waiter doesn't sit with us. He's not part of the conversation. We just call him over when we need something. Sometimes we treat God like this, don't we? He's not part of our lives. But when we need something, oh boy, he better be there, right? Friends, this is taking God too lightly. Israel needed to learn this lesson. And friends, so do we. Friends, we may be warned by this story. God's not going to tolerate a sort of engagement with him that attempts to twist his arm. In chapter 4, verse 3, notice the elders call the ark the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It's as if they're, they're kind of, they're, they're calling down this God and they're reminding him, hey, you're, you're our covenant God. You, you kind of owe it to us and you should save us. You should defend us. You should deliver us. But God, interestingly enough, he absolutely proved himself to be that covenant Lord just by bringing covenant curses on Israel and deploying the Philistines against his people because he was trying to discipline them, right? Israel's problem was not God's absence, but his disciplinary presence. And I just wonder, might God be operating in your life in a similar way? You might be kicking and screaming under the heavy circumstances that God has brought into your life. You might be accusing God of being distant or silent or even cruel But what if the Spirit is actually more present right now with you in the discipline? What if the hand that is heavy on you is actually the hand of a good, loving Father who's also a disciplinarian? I mentioned this last week, right? If this is happening to you, let me encourage you, let me exhort you to embrace His discipline and to learn. I mean, look at this story. Look at, look at Israel in the story. The ark enters the hands of God's enemies, and that's not a good thing, right? It meant that Yahweh was shamed before the Philistines. But friends, and hear me now, this is coming from Dave, Dale Ralph Davis. He said these words, God would rather suffer shame than allow you to have a false relationship with him. He will allow you to be disappointed with him if it means you'll awaken to the reality of who he really is. Friends, we must allow God to train us like this, to train us to feel the weight of his existence. Okay, so Israel takes God too lightly. And how does God respond? Here's the next movement. God, his glory leaves Israel. His weightiness and presence leaves Israel. Now the scene kind of shifts from the battle. We see we're now in the city of Shiloh. Eli, notice, has grown not only old, but heavy. And he was sitting and waiting and watching. And notice verse 13 says he was scared and anxious. We understand why his boys were in the battle. And so this man from the tribe of Benjamin arrives, starts giving reports, and there's an outcry in the city. There's an outcry in the city that's rising up. I, I, I've never, never imagined something like that before. Imagine the weight and the pain and the difficulty of this outcry. And so this man finally breaks the news to Eli. Look at verse 16. The second half. What happened, my son? Eli asked. 
The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. And so here we are, Eli dies. The evil epoch of his lineage comes to a close. So God's judgment is fulfilled, indicating God is working. But friends, if you thought the story can't get any darker, it does. <laughs> Eli's pregnant daughter-in-law hears the news. She has this baby. And listen, she's so depressed. She's so depressed. She just heard the news of her husband so depressed because she's heard the news of this ark, the ark that is left, that before she dies in childbirth, she names her child Ichabod. It's kind of a strange name. What does it mean? Well, the story gets sadder and sadder. We learn that Ichabod means the glory is exiled. Why did she name him that? Look at verse 21. Because the glory has departed from Israel. You know, she probably taught, thought better theology in her death than Phineas ever did in his whole life. And this birth, I mean, this birth should have been cause for joy, right? Uh, but this birth has no cause for joy. It should have been. This was, this was new life after all. This should have been the new priest to lead God's people after the death of his father and grandfather. Hooray, right? Those of you that have been in in the room where a baby is delivered, maybe you're the dad or the mom or perhaps a relative or a friend, you know how much joy that produces for the family. But not this birth. This birth was filled with hopelessness and sadness. It reinforced the evils that Israel would suffer. God's glory was gone. Where is the glory? Where is the glory? Well, on one hand, Eli and his sons kind of stole it. In a very real sense, the glory is around, get this, the waist of Eli. Okay? What am I talking about? Well, notice it says heavy. The author says he was heavy a couple times, verse 18, and I think elsewhere too. Why does the author give this detail? The story could totally progress without this detail. What's going on here? Well, the writer is drawing our attention to Eli's weight because remember, weight and glory come from the same root word. Where's the glory gone? It's in his gut. It's in his beer belly. It's his, you know, love handles. It's on his body, in other words. Do you remember chapter two? God said to Eli, this is after his sons were making all those terrible sacrifices. God says to Eli, the father, why do you scorn my sacrifices? Why do you honor your sons more than me? Here it is. By fattening yourself on the choice parts of the offering. Do you remember that? The fatty meat belonged to God, the other parts to the priests. But Eli and his sons wanted the burnt ends, the buttery good stuff. And I get it. I like that stuff too. But it was forbidden. So Eli fattened himself on the fat that belonged to God. It's like Eli stole God's glory and put it on his body. He grew heavy with self-glory. Instead of serving the weighty glory of God, Eli took God lightly. And he made himself heavy as a result. Interesting, right? Friends, don't think this is just an isolated situation. We in the 21st century, 
People in the 21st century, we do this as well. We fatten ourselves at the expense of the glory of God. We suddenly convince ourselves that God exists for us instead of the opposites. Instead of recognizing that we are made in his image, we attempt to make him in our own. And so, friends, are some of us carrying (laughs) just a little bit too much weight? Carrying the weights of self-glory. You know, I can think of seasons of my life, maybe you can think of seasons of your life where you've had a greater concern for building your own kingdom instead of establishing the kingdom of Jesus. Maybe it's the kingdom of your own family. Maybe it's, you know, my work kingdom or my social kingdom or even my ministry kingdom. And then the Lord chooses to kind of press his hand against you and and you find his hand is heavy against you because he is disciplining you. He's teaching you and training you about his own weightiness in your life. Because friends, God is not interested in building your kingdom of self. He's interested in building and expanding and establishing the kingdom of his son, Jesus. And this isn't just personal, this is a corporate reality, right? I mean, think about Revelation, the letters that, he, that Jesus wrote to uh, uh, these churches, these seven churches, and, and he threatened them, listen, if you don't obey me, if you start to fatten yourself with self-glory, I'm going to yank the lampstand. Do you remember this? And that's just a, a picture for saying, hey, I'm going to take my favor away from you. So there's a warning in this passage. But in another sense, the glory has left Israel. We obviously see that in verse 22. We see it in verse 21 as well. Because when the ark left, God left too. God is not going to allow his glory to be mocked, to be you know, taken for granted and used for our purposes. God will not be our good luck charm. Psalm 78 is a song that was written, and it, and it kind of actually engages with this very story. Listen to verse 60. God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. This is absolutely devastating for the people of Israel. You see, friends, the the most terrible judgment that Israel received, the most terrible judgment of God is the departure of God. It's him leaving Israel, him leaving a church, him leaving your life. And so there is a warning that we ought to feel as we come to this passage. But there's also comfort And at first glance, there's virtually nothing encouraging about this chapter. I mean, it starts bad and it gets worse, right? But I want to point out there's two quiet notes of hope in this story. Let's not miss the way God is working here. It's so easy to get wrapped up in all the bad stuff. Israel's losses and the 34,000 and the ark being captured and, and God's reputation being marred. But in the middle of all this, God is quietly fulfilling a word that he had spoken. Right in the midst of the mess, God removes, who does he remove? He removes those false shepherds, right? Eli and his sons. And he told us that he would do that for the good of his people, and he did. And so we, the reader, are meant to recognize, listen, God works even in the rubble. Whether that's the rubble of a church or the rubble of your personal lives, God can still work. That's the first quiet note of hope. But there's another. Why would God allow this tragedy to occur for this ark, this precious ark of the covenant, this, this beautiful ark of the covenant that represents his presence to then wander outside the promised land? We've seen some, some of this already. God was disciplining his people, but consider again those curses against his people, the curses of the covenant from Deuteronomy 28. 
Those curses were enacted, and so this is one of those curses, and and there's a great defeat here. But here's the deal. If Israel persisted in sin and idolatry, even after God would bring all these other curses on them, then what would happen? Do you remember? He would kick them out of the promised land, right? So this curse, this curse about being kicked out of the promised land was looming for Israel during this awful season of Eli's leadership. But friends, instead of Israel going into exile, the ark did. God put himself in exile, taking on the curse of the covenants for his people. Do you hear that? Israel should have been kicked out of the land. I mean, they totally deserve that. But God mercifully, graciously put himself in their place. Mercy. So two quiet notes of hope. But as we consider the rest of the story, we start to see more. In a couple of chapters, the ark returns. The people repent. There's relief for Israel from their hardship. Much later in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we learn that David, King David at that point, brings the ark back into Jerusalem. And so God's mediating kind of, kind of weighty presence is finally brought into the middle of God's people. And then Solomon, David's son, would then construct this incredible temple, right? And and so where would God's presence go? It would go in the middle of that temple, in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat, the covering of the Ark would reside, the footstool of God. And the glory would fill that temple. In fact, the narrator in, I think it's 1 Kings, describes God's presence. It was so weighty, so glory, so majestic that when God first descended upon the temple, Do you remember what happened? The Levitical priests, they couldn't stand because they were taking it all in. God's glory would fill that temple in the midst of God's people and it would give them hope and encouragement and joy and a sense that God is with us. But (laughs) Israel would be Israel, right? Because they're just people like us. And so they would forsake God. They would fall into sin over and over again. This is nothing new, is it? I mean, if God's presence with his people is dependent on our holiness, then we're done for. He would never be with us. We don't deserve his presence any more than they did thousands of years ago. Because of our sin, none of us would know God's presence or power. From the garden to Shiloh to the temple that we see uh, Solomon constructing. God's absence, the departure of his glory, is because people are rebellious, right? And that's what happened after a certain amount of time as they were together experiencing this presence, God's presence in the temple. Eventually, because of their sin, that glory would depart the temple. And so Israel, for hundreds of years, did not have God. Put yourself in their shoes. Stories of prophets and temples and mountains that shake Stories of God's glory and his presence and his power filling the temple. Stories of Moses coming down from the mountain and his face is just lit up with the glory of God, the Shekinah of God. They they knew all of this and they had a memory, right? They had a memory, a distant memory of God doing this with them for a long time. But now, for hundreds of years, he would not only be silent, he would be absent. How this must have shook God's people. Would he come again to dwell with them? Where is his glory? 
How long, O oh Lord? Would he bring the Shekinah again? Would he, would he bring what, what Moses experienced? Would he bring that to the people of God again? Would he mercifully bring his presence and mercifully forgive our sins for we continue to be that unfaithful people deserving of judgment? Now watch this, and some of you can see where I'm going next. Listen to the New Testament authors, starting with John. And the word, the logos of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Hebrews chapter one, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Later, 2 Corinthians chapter eight, Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where, Paul? In the face of Jesus. The glory departed, but the glory has come. And now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. And now it's not just a symbol in a box. It's personified in a man. You don't have to stare at the shadow. You can have the real thing in front of you. Emmanuel, God with us. Shekinah around us. The angels sang about it in the fields. God's church has been singing about it for 2,000 years. Glory to Christ on high. Let praises fill the sky. Praise ye his name. He all our sorrows bore. Angels his name adore. And saints cry forevermore. Worthy is the Lamb. You see, Ichabod reminds us that the glory of God has been exiled to bear Israel's curse. Jesus reminds us that he put himself in exile to bear our curse. God stood in Israel's stead, taking on the shame of defeat. Centrally, centuries later, he would do the same thing for us. He would stand in our stead, taking on the shame of seeming defeat on a cross, bearing not only our guilt, but our shame. So today, we don't have to look at an ark. We can look at the real thing. We can look at Jesus. We can look at Emmanuel. We can look at a cross. Listen, every single person in this room could be named Ichabod. This church could be named Ichabod Evangelical Free Church. My name is Ichabod, and I'm from the No Glory Church. Welcome to the church where God's glory has departed. Friends, this is what we deserve but God does not give us what we deserve, does he? He gives us Christ. And his glory now fills us. It's in you. Remember that Jars of Clay verse? Some of you like the band Jars of Clay. Well, it comes from a verse. Kid you not. Uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it's 8 somewhere. Well, well, it talks about how his glory fills us like we are jars of clay. And we've got these cracks in, in, in this jar. And so that glory kind of shines forth. And so if if you are in Christ, you have the glory of Christ. And if this church together is in Christ, then we together have the glory of Christ, the presence of Christ, never to leave us now. So brothers and sisters, this is why, this is why we exist. We exist to promote Jesus and him alone. We're spotlight holders, okay? Not for ourselves, not for our own individual interests, not for even faith church. 
We are spotlight holders for Jesus. And so whether we have renovations plans for this space or we have desires to hire new staff or hopes for a new Sunday school curriculum, whether we are considering vacation options as a family or taking a new job or starting a new dating relationship, hear me now, the glory, the fame of Jesus must be at the forefront. The glory, the fame of Jesus must be at the forefront, nurturing our affections, shaping our ambitions, and giving direction to our directions, right? And having this all-consuming passion for Christ's glory, the weightiness of Jesus, it must change us. What might this singular passion for Jesus' glory change in your life today? Should you be the same person you are right now? Should you have the same investments, the same commitments, the same priorities as you do right now? Or should his weight, the glory that you house in that jar of clay, should it change you? It should. When God is taken too lightly among us, he will make sure to throw his weight around. He will get our attention. But when we feel that weightiness of God, when we start to serve the weightiness of God's glory, We can lose in life. We can even fail in life, but still know that Christ is going to be glorified in our faith and in our faithfulness. We can take huge risks for the mission and still know that Christ is honored regardless of the outcome. We can take huge risks in our relationships and know that Christ is magnified as we're trying to sacrifice and love other people. Sometimes it's just a one-sided relationship. Friends, when the weight of glory, when the weight of the glory of Christ is the, the center of our lives, everything else will have its proper weight and place. And then we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, whether I eat, whether I drink, whatever I do, I do all for the glory of God. Now, to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, Jesus, be honor and glory forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now as we consider the passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.